Let me ask you a question. Is anybody on their homeowners association board? Really? We have to talk, okay? We used to um, assign the youngest lawyers to the homeowners association clients because <laughs> nobody else wanted to do it. So. Anyway, we received a letter from our homeowners association this week. Yeah, seriously. One of the board members was driving around the neighborhood looking for homeowners association bylaw violations, and apparently he found one at my house. Now, even though the letter was annoying, and it was really annoying, it, the homeowners association wasn't wrong. Our lawn was entirely brown, and it was all my fault. I take full responsibility. I have confessed it all to you. I hope you have the grace to forgive me. I turned off the sprinklers because the pump was really loud. And it was up against the wall, so it kind of, you feel it inside the house. And the water we use, we live on a canal, and, and the water draws out of the canal, and it just leaves these terrible stains on our cars. Yeah, it has a smell, too. You know, all the fertilizer runs into the canal and all that stuff, and... And I figured, we live in Florida. I mean, it's always raining here, isn't it? Like, we thought, okay, that'll keep the grass green. So that was my plan, and it turned out to be just a huge fail. The rainfall in our area, you guys probably noticed, has been way below average this year. So I started watering again. And the green, more or less, is returning. I'm pretty sure it's not all grass, but weeds are green too, you know, so that's okay. But the whole thing got me thinking about rain. Wouldn't it be nice if our rainfall was more predictable? Now, I will tell you this. With the advance of satellite technology and 24-hour news coverage and all this, our weather reports have gotten better than they were when I was growing up. If, if you're you know, roughly my age, you'll remember these things. The weather report was just something that you were like, okay, sure, you know. It was maybe right, maybe wrong. You never really expected it to be accurate. It was really just an absolute coin toss sort of thing. Now, okay, it's a little better, but wouldn't it be nice if it was a lot better? Well, apparently I'm not the first person to have this thought because throughout America's history, people have attempted to influence the weather. Now, we've all seen depictions on television and in the movies back in the day where Native American tribes who lived in semi-arid deserts around the country, the Pueblo, the Hopi, the Zuni people, they have for centuries engaged in elaborate rituals and dances to try to coax moisture from the clear skies. Right? We've all seen that. Did you know that in the late 1800s, the early 1900s, there were traveling rainmakers who also sold snake oil and read fortunes and did things like that, but they, they traveled all over the western United States promising to end droughts for a fee, of course. Well, eventually, the U.S. government got in on the act. In 1891, Congress appropriated, get this, $19,000 to conduct rainmaking tests in Texas. I read, I read the other day that they appropriated about a million dollars to test the effects of cocaine on some insect. So, I mean, I guess they were spending less money better back then. But anyway, those tests proved inconclusive results. So, 
After World War II, things began to change, and there was a breakthrough in 1946. In 1946, a single-propeller airplane took off from a Schenectady County airport with a rather unique payload. The plane was carrying six pounds of dry ice, and it was taking off to perform a fairly unique mission. The pilot was actually a chemist who had learned how to fly. The chemist's name was Vincent Schaefer, and he had been conducting secret experiments at the General Electric Research Laboratory in upstate New York. And using a General Electric freezer chilled to sub-zero temperatures, Schaefer created clouds using his breath, like that, for condensation. And he seeded these breath clouds that he had produced with dry ice. And the dry ice catalyzed this chemical reaction, and it caused snow crystals to form in the freezer. So, a few months later, it was time for a field test. So Schaefer rented an airplane, and he flew it up into a cloud, up into a cumulus cloud, and he dumped the dry ice. Now, eyewitnesses on the ground said that it was almost like the cloud exploded with snow. The snowfall that it created was visible for 40 miles, and they called that practice seeding the clouds. Anybody ever heard that term before? You've heard that, right? Seed the clouds? No? The science of seeding clouds is a modern marvel. Now people try to bring rain and control certain weather by continuing to do so. But the idea of seeding the clouds is an ancient idea. It's at least as old as the prophet Elijah. We're going to be talking about that today. But first, let's pray. Father God, thank you for gathering us together this morning. We, uh, we appreciate, Lord the sacrifices made for us by those who've given their life in defense of our freedom. And this weekend, we commemorate that. And as we are off on a Monday, we take the time to remember that we're free because others paid the ultimate price. God, as we continue on this morning, as we look into the scripture, we would ask that you would use your word to continue to draw us closer, to continue to change our hearts and minds. God, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, welcome to the seventh and final installment of our series, Win the Day. So, in this series, we've been talking about how God has given us all the guidance we need to live the life to which he has called us, to live the abundant life about which Jesus spoke. Jesus said, I came that they, that's us, may have life and have it abundantly. Now, as a quick review, and you can always check out the messages that you might have missed or you want to hear again on hammockstreetchurch.com. Just click on the watch live and you'll, you'll pick up our YouTube channel and you'll get everything. But we began by talking about how if we want to win the day, we needed to flip the script. In week one, we talked about how we as followers of Jesus, as people who've understood that in spite of our innate sinfulness, Jesus loves us anyway. And out of his love for us, he's made a way for us to be connected forever to God by paying for all of our sins on the cross and then coming back from the dead. And when we turned from our natural selves and made Jesus our Lord and Savior, we became his people. And once we are his people, then we can change our lives by changing our stories. Then the next week we talked about how we can win the day when we learn to kiss the wave. We learned that we need to lean into the unknown. And we can only do that by taking the first step in faith. And if we do that, then we can transform ourselves from victims to victors. Then we saw how we can win the day when we learn to eat the frog. 
we learned that when we, when we figure out how to discipline ourselves to do the things we don't want to do, to tackle our biggest daily challenges first, then God will do big things in and through our lives. And then we followed that by talking about how we can begin to live abundant lives for God by learning to fly the kite. Remember in that message we saw how if we're faithful in the little things, then we'll be faithful in the big things. And God will provide us with more and more opportunities to show that faith. Then we talked about the power of cutting the rope. How we can get started living for God by just jumping in. By taking that bold action to get things going. And then last week, we looked at our relationship with time. And how we need to make time for God. And not fall into the trap of letting the tyranny of the daily flood of minutes rob us of the blessings of God's provision of the powerful moments in our lives. We talked about that, and we called it winding the clock. Well, today as we wrap up, we're going to look at how we can take proactive measures today, proactive measures that will produce desired outcomes tomorrow. How we can sow today what we want to see tomorrow. How we need to learn to seed the clouds. If we want a beneficial outcome in our lives, we need to seed the clouds. All right, how do we do this? Well, to see what I'm talking about, we're going to be going back to the Hebrew Bible, back to the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at the book of Kings. So before we dig into the book of Kings, I want to start off with a little bit of background. Now, those Bible scholars among us may remember that there are actually in our Bibles two books called Kings, 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Well, you need to know they were written as one book, but they were broken into two parts because the book was too long. That's really how spiritual it is. The text was broken into two parts because they couldn't fit it all on a single scroll. It would be unwieldy. They wouldn't be able to carry the scroll around. Now, in the title, Kings, you would guess that the book is an account of the activities of all the kings of Israel and Judah, right? And, and it is that, but it's not only that. It's not even primarily that. Actually, it's a history of the kings and their activities for sure, but also there was a theological purpose. The authors who wrote Kings, and it was written over a long period of time, so there's a lot of people that wrote it, their purpose was to look at the reigns of these kings in light of their faithfulness or unfaithfulness to God. Kings assumes the worldview of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, by the way, all of us should be living with that same worldview. And in fact, I was chatting with somebody this morning about the fact that, listen, a lot of what we do here is about making sure we all understand the way to look at the world. See, when we understand the worldview that comes to us from the Bible, we're not so surprised by all the things that happen. And we know how to handle the things that happen. So, they wanted to look at the reigns of these kings and to see whether they were faithful to God because that is the worldview of Deuteronomy. Faithfulness to God leads to prosperity and unfaithfulness to God leads to judgment. Kings also emphasizes the covenant. Remember what the covenant is? It's that solemn binding agreement that God made with David, King David, to establish his kingdom forever. So the books of kings cover the period from about four centuries, of about four centuries. So it started really with David's old age and his son Solomon's ascension to the throne. That's about 960 BC. And it ends with the fall of Judah 
and the exile, which is about 586 BC. Now, in addition to the stories of all these kings, kings includes the stories of 12 prophets who consistently called Israel and Judah to repent of their sins and trust God for their deliverance. Remember what a prophet does. A prophet hears a word from God and then tells the people. So the prophets speak on behalf of God. Now, in Kings, the work of Elijah and Elisha, that's the centerpiece. Fifteen chapters, almost one-third of all of Kings, are devoted to their work. Elijah and Elisha are among the greatest Old Testament prophets, with Elijah being especially important. Now, again, we don't know who wrote Kings. Most scholars believe that it was written and shaped over time by a number of authors and editors. So just understand that it came from a lot of people. And today we're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 18. So before we open that book, let me set the scene for you. From the prior chapter, 1 Kings 17, we learned that it hadn't rained in Israel for three and a half years. Now, we haven't had that kind of drought here. We've had a bit of a drought, but not that kind of drought. So they hadn't seen rain for three and a half years, and that's why and, and where and when the prophet Elijah climbed up to the top of Mount Carmel and he seeded the clouds, in a manner of speaking. So now let's take a look at the scripture. 1 Kings 18, 41 through 42. This is the, the uh, New Living Translation. Again, as I've explained before, I like to try to find the translations that tell the story we're working on in the best possible way. The translations are all accurate. They're all really close. If you ever look at a graph of how their accuracy is, is plotted, it's just some tell stories better than others, in my opinion. All right. Then Elijah said to Ahab, go get something to eat and drink, for I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. So Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bowed low to the ground, and prayed with his face between his knees. Verse 43, then he said to his servant, go and look out toward the sea. The servant went and looked and returned to Elijah and said, I didn't see anything. Seven times Elijah told him to go and look. Finally, the seventh time his servant told him, I saw a little cloud about the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. Then Elijah shouted, hurry to Ahab and tell him, climb into your chariot, go back home. If you don't hurry, the rain will stop you. Verse 45, and soon the sky was black with clouds. A heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. Then the Lord gave special strength to Elijah he tucked his cloak into his belt and ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. Now, before we go on, I do want to point out one, I think it's kind of a cool little subplot. You saw that Elijah just ran a long distance, right? Yeah, we, we don't know how long it was. It might have been 17 miles. It could have been as much as 30 miles, depending on the route he took. But he beat the chariot home. He beat Ahab's chariot. Now, we're not going to really dig into this, but isn't it pretty awesome that the first marathon runner is actually here in the Bible? Something to think about for those runners out there. Anyway, with this background in mind, let's see the clouds. All right, so how do we see the clouds? Well, let's say it's as easy as one, two, three. One, we see the clouds with prophetic imagination. Two, we see the clouds with patient persistence. And three, we see the clouds with bold prayer. So... Ready? Let's dig in. We can see the clouds with prophetic imagination. 
little more than half a century ago, Dr. Alfred Tomatis was confronted with the most curious case of his 50-year career as a world-renowned otolaryngologist. Say that three times fast. A prominent opera singer came to the good doctor, and the opera singer lost his ability to hit certain notes, even though these notes were well within his vocal range. Now, he'd been to other specialists, all of whom thought it was a vocal problem, but Dr. Tomatis thought otherwise. So he used a sonometer, a meter that measures sound, and he discovered that the opera singer was producing a 140 decibel sound wave recorded at a meter's distance. As a reference, 140 decibels is louder than a military jet taking off from an aircraft carrier. Okay, so this guy could sing. Well, long story short, the opera singer actually had been deafened by the sound of his own voice. He could no longer hit the notes because he could no longer hear the notes. See, scientists believe that the voice can only reproduce what the ear can hear. The French Academy of Medicine dubbed this the tomatus effect. So, what does that have to do with our topic today? Well, it's similar in that all of us have problems in life. We have relational problems, emotional problems, spiritual problems, and we all think our problems are the problem. But what if the problems that we have aren't the problem, but what if those problems point to a larger, more systemic, underlying problem that we have? What if our larger, more systemic, underlying problem is a hearing problem? What if the majority of the problems that we experience can be traced back to the fact that we can no longer hear what we've been deafened to? We can no longer hear the gentle whisper of the Holy Spirit. A little later in 1 Kings, we see this in 1 Kings 19.11. And Elijah stood there. The Lord passed by. A mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. How have we been deafened to the voice of the Holy Spirit, to that gentle whisper? Well, for one, the noise of our culture tends to deafen us. We live in a culture where we are bombarded with news and false news, every minute of every hour of every day. We are inundated with clickbait, which is foisted upon us by online advertisers. Anybody who has mentioned anything about buying anything at night wakes up in the morning to a feed full of that thing, right? And that's not all. Every one of the social media platforms that we use employs algorithms that follow our clicks and follow our visits and then specifically curate our feeds with more of the same. So in other words, we keep seeing what we keep on seeing, what we keep on seeing, and we keep on seeing it, and now we're safely locked in our own echo chamber. An echo chamber basically means we say something and then we hear what we said back to us so we think people agree with us. That's an echo chamber. We hear only the things we already know, or at least the things we already think we know. And the result of filling our heads with all of this noise is that it makes it impossible for God to get a word in edgewise. 
But even in the face of all that, we still have a bigger problem. We still have a more dire problem that keeps us from hearing the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And that problem is our own self-talk. See, like that opera singer, we also have been deafened by the sound of our own voices. We talked about this phenomenon a little bit when we talked about Flip the Script back in Habit 1. We have roughly 60,000 thoughts every day. Roughly. 80% of those are negative, according to studies. What's the cure? Scripture. See what I did there? It's clever, right? Remember what Paul said in Romans 12 too? He said that our lives can be transformed by and for God when our minds have been renewed. Remember Romans 12 too? It said this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. It all starts up here. It all starts in our head. We renew our minds by learning to tell ourselves a better story. That's the way we can turn up the volume on God's voice. Now, I hinted at a question a few weeks ago that's worth revisiting. Here's the question. What percentage of your thoughts, your words, and your actions are just a regurgitation of the news media that you watch and the social media that you follow? What percentage? I bet it's high. See, the algorithms responsible for bringing you your news result in your having an ear that cannot hear the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. So now let's flip that script. What percentage of your thoughts and your words and your actions are the revelation that you are getting from God's word? I don't want to hear that answer either, okay? Even for myself. That has to change. We've got to be grounded in God's word because when we open the Bible, God opens his mouth. So the best way to turn up the volume on that still, small voice is get to know your Bible. Read your Bible every day. Well, now I want to juxtapose that with verse 41. Elijah said to Ahab, go get something to eat and drink, for I hear a mighty rainstorm is coming. So Elijah heard something that no one else was even listening for. Remember, it hadn't rained in three and a half years. He heard something that hadn't happened in three and a half years. That was coming. How did he hear it? Because he had a prophetic ear. He knew what to listen for. And that's where prophetic imagination starts. Prophetic imagination is seeing the invisible, it's hearing the inaudible, and it's believing the impossible. Those things result from developing an ear that is fine-tuned to the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. We need to be listening for the Holy Spirit's voice in all the things that we face. That's what's happening up there in verse 41. It hadn't rained in three and a half years. Now, knowing that, you probably go, okay, Elijah's forecast just seems silly, right? It seems like he's way out of touch with reality. There's, there's an old axiom. Those who don't hear the music think the dancer is crazy. You ever see one of those uh, silent dances that they do now? where everybody's wearing headphones and everybody sees, hears their own music and they're all dancing and no one else can hear it and yet everybody just looks like they're out of their minds. You know, when you exercise prophetic imagination, it may seem like you're out of touch with reality, but you're actually in touch with the reality beyond your five senses, beyond the things you can taste or touch or see or smell or feel. That's what prophetic imagination is and that's what God's people need. Next, we can see the clouds with patient persistence. 
Now, it's interesting, in the first century B.C., which is years after the story we're talking about, there was a drought that was not unlike the drought that Elijah experienced. This drought sort of uh, threatened to destroy the entire generation before Jesus. Now, in that day, there was a holy man whom the people asked to pray for rain. Well, he did something curious. Unlike Elijah, he didn't climb Mount Carmel. He took his staff, his stick, and he drew a circle in the sand, and he knelt down inside that circle, and he prayed this prayer. Sovereign Lord, I swear before your great name that I will not leave this circle until you have mercy upon your children. That's a bold prayer. We're going to talk about bold prayer in a few minutes. But according to the Talmud, that man was named Honi the circle maker. And he was captivated by one phrase in one verse of scripture. The phrase comes from Psalm 126.1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. We were like those who dream. That phrase provoked a question that Honey the circle maker wrestled with his entire life. Is it possible for a person to dream continuously for 70 years? Hold that thought. This is interesting. Studies have shown that as we age, the cognitive center of gravity in our brain tends to shift from the right brain to the left brain. Now, that's an oversimplification, but the left brain is a focus of logic. The right brain is the focus of our imagination or the locus of our imagination. It's where it comes from. So logic comes from the left brain and imagination comes from the right brain. That neurological tendency presents a problem. At some point in our lives, most of us stop living out of our imagination and we start living out of our memory. We stop creating a future in our minds and we start repeating the past. We stop living by faith and we start living by logic. That's when we stop living and we start dying. You see, most people die long before the date on their death certificate. It doesn't have to be that way. Without a vision, the writer of Proverbs said, the people perish. So vision acts as a preservative. If you have a vision, you're never old. You're never past your prime. If you have a vision, you never age out of the game. Just ask Caleb. He was strong at 85 years old. He was as strong at 85 as he was at 40. How was that possible? By vision. Vision is an expression of prophetic imagination. But guess what? Vision doesn't come easy. Vision takes patient persistence. If you want to dream big, you have to think long. You have to play the long game. Because one of two things happens over time. Either memory takes over imagination or imagination takes over memory. And imagination is the way that we seed the clouds to the third and fourth generation. And it takes patient persistence. Now watch this. We just read this, verse 44. Finally, the seventh time, his servant told him, I see a little cloud about the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. That's an awfully small cloud, isn't it? But that's not the issue. 
Remember, we've talked about it. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. Remember, we talked about if you do little things like they're big things, God will do big things like they're little things. You see, with patient persistence, you have to attempt the things that are really beyond your ability and beyond your resources and beyond your education and beyond your experience because that's when and where God shows up in your life and God shows off in your life. Here's another lesson. When you're faithful in one place, though you may not always experience the blessing right there and then, God will bless you somehow, some way, and somewhere. Elijah asked his servant to go look for rain seven times. Seven is not an insignificant number in Scripture, right? We see seven all over the place. Proverbs 24, 16 says... Though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. Seven times. Now, one way I study scripture is I'll take a word or a phrase and I'll plug it into a Bible search. And I looked up the phrase seven times. And it's amazing how many times it occurs. By the way, not seven. More than that. Seven is the number of perfection. Seven is the number of completion. So it's used literally and figuratively. But either way, there are so many sevens, just a few. Abraham bowed to the ground seven times in Genesis 33. The priest in Leviticus consecrated the altar by sprinkling it seven times. Psalm 12 tells us that the word of the Lord is like silver refined seven times. Jesus upped the ante and told us to forgive not seven times, but 70 times seven times. Now there are three inciting incidents, all of which illustrate the power of sevens that we'll take a quick look at. Now in Joshua 6, the Israelites circled Jericho seven times. And on the seventh day, what happened? The walls came a-tumbling down, right? In 2 Kings 4, Naaman dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. And in 1 Kings 18, Elijah prayed seven times for rain. Have you ever heard of the counterfactual theory? The counterfactual theory asks what if questions. So it's like, okay, here are the facts, but what if they were different, right? What if the Israelites had stopped circling after the sixth circle? What if Naaman had stopped after six dips? What if Elijah had quit play, praying after his sixth attempt? Well, you know the answer. There wouldn't have been a miracle. They'd have forfeited the miracle just before it happened. So seeding the clouds is all about patient persistence. Jesus said it this way, ask, seek, and knock. Those are imperative words. In other words, Jesus is saying this, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. It is too soon to quit. It is too soon to give up. That's how we seed the clouds with patient persistence. Finally, we seed the clouds with bold prayer. There is no more powerful way to seed the clouds than with bold prayer. Now, a bold prayer is a prayer that is beyond your ability, beyond your resources, and beyond your imagination. In other words, a bold prayer offers to God something that you can't do on your own. But a bold prayer is also a prayer that you've prayed a hundred times that God hasn't answered yet. But you don't feel released, so you keep on praying it. I know God wants me to keep on praying this prayer, so you keep on praying it. Now, I don't know what miracle you're believing God for, but it's too soon to quit. When you keep on praying, you keep on seeding the clouds with faith, hope, and love. In 853 BC, a king named Jehoram assumed the throne of Judah. 
He was the fifth king of the southern kingdom, 117 years after David's death. And in 2 Kings 8.18, here's what the writer said. That king, Jehoram, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He killed his brothers so he would get the throne, but that wasn't the end of his story. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David, as he promised him to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. No matter how bad that king was, the God had made a promise to David, and he was going to keep that promise. David was long gone, 117 years. This was six kings later, but God had not forgotten his people. God had not forgotten his promise. That's what happens when we see the clouds. See, there's no expiration date on love. There's no expiration date on faith. There's no expiration date on prayer. And do you know something? We are the beneficiaries of prayers that we know nothing about. If you grew up in a faithful household, your relatives prayed for you. Your relatives prayed for your spouse, for your children, for your job, for your future. We're the beneficiaries of prayers we know nothing about. We harvest in fields that we didn't plant. We drink from wells that we didn't dig. We live in houses that we didn't build. See, we tend to think in the right here, right now, but God is thinking about nations and generations. We think that what God does for us is for us. But it's never just for us. God always acts for the third and fourth generation. That's why we need to remember to see the clouds. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for gathering us again. We thank you for this series. We thank you for this opportunity that we've had to look into your wisdom, to understand how you've created us, to understand what you've drawn us to and how you would have us live and what you want for us and for your kingdom. God, as we uh, continue on this weekend, we we would ask that um, we always bear that in mind, that we give thanks for the freedom that we have to worship you and that we remember that knowing you is the best thing, the most important thing that we could ever do. God, we thank you for all of your blessings. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.